Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Don Muchao and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. The Voice in the Wilderness Standing atop a commanding spot on the craggy promontory of Mount Kla, Flick raised his arms in a silencing gesture toward the milling, muttering crowd of thousands. The trees swayed and jerked. Wind tore at his robes and beard, adding to the drama. From here, he knew, his voice would project into the valley and beyond, naturally amplified by the stony walls of the centuries-old mountain readout. With luck, the wind would carry it further. My people, he shouted, and the hubbub died down. My people, the time has come for a new age. The Almighty has spoken. I have gazed into the wall of flame, and the message is clear. We must move beyond the hopelessness and despair, fawning dependence and superstition, beyond the point where we duck and shirk at things that fly in the night, and instead command that the darkness abate. Nonsense, came a distant cry, and judging from the murmur, about half the crowd agreed, and another half wanted the voice silenced. Flick waited. I ask nothing that we have not already done, he continued. But the voice of the Lord has commanded us to educate ourselves, to become what our people have always dreamed. What you have always dreamed! Flick lowered his arms slightly, mostly out of tiredness, and partly because the wind threatened to knock him off the rocky outcropping. His enthusiasm was draining, being replaced by a more desperate hunger to be understood in the limited time he had. It is not my dream, he said, his voice lowering in volume and trailing off. Then, in a final burst of energy, he found its power again. For the Lord promises destruction upon all who do not fulfill this mission. Ilya Meyer leaned over the display enhancement screen on the canonical vacuum generator. You have to come see this, she said to no one in particular. The lab around her was filled with people, mostly DARPA, and a few real physicists and other scientists. It looks like a disturbance in the envelope. Kevin Mayfield grabbed a handful of peanuts from the bag next to his workstation, grabbed a Coke, and strode over to where Ilya was standing. Mind if I take a look? Meyer stepped back from the display. Of course not. That's why I asked. Mayfield tried to focus through the orange vapor that wove in and out of the cluster of super magnets, wires, and bulletproof glass. What am I looking at? The vapor, she replied, as if it were obvious. It shouldn't be there. Mayfield shrugged and took a sip of his soda. And? Meyer forgot for a moment that Mayfield, while not DARPA, wasn't a particle physicist either. He was one of those cross-disciplinary types the Institute had hired to make sense of what went on between physicists like her, mathematicians, cryptologists, linguists, complexity theorists, and a host of other savants who ran around with heads up, making wild gestures and talking in an almost non-English patois of techno-babble. 
What you're looking at, she continued, are the first signs of order in the envelope. Remember last week when we brought the vacuum generator online? Well, since then, remote stations in Italy have picked up Kalibi Yao signatures, indicating a dimensional fold. The envelope has grown from a singularity to a manifold, a Mladenau void. Mladenau void? <sighs> Leonard Mladenau was the scientist who first proposed that, given the appropriate mathematical parameters for a Riemann curvature tensor, and given those conditions in a canonical vacuum, structure must evolve, and the void created would expand. This is confirmation of his conjecture. The significance of which is? In a sense, explained Meyer, we've created a bubble universe. Out of nothing? <laughs> How's that possible? Meyer returned to viewing the display. There are some even in my profession, she said, who don't know. But the point is that it's happened. Gavin Strongbeard summoned his counselors and science priests to the court. Word had it that for the first time in the 1,200 years since Flick, the mysterious wall of flame that shrouded the known universe had thrilled, undulated, and wavered in patterns. Flick had been stoned for suggesting the Lord spoke to him in such ways, but his legacy held, and science had flourished. As he sat gazing out the window over the far reaches of his kingdom, Strongbeard mused on what the world would have been like, if not for Flick. No discovery of optics in the third century, no advances in chemistry, no disciplined research in physics. Each day his ministers came to him begging for resources for some new research, and each day he faced the difficult task of turning down some promising new technology. Advances in navigation had led to circumnavigation of his waterlogged world. Weather studies had revealed patterns in the seasons, and as he looked out of the massive pane of glass, he marveled at how the disciplines of architecture, statics, glass blowing, metallurgy, and dynamics had all served the glory of God. But coffers were running dry from recent wars and all too frequent voyages of exploration. The thousand-year plans of Flick demanded constant progress. To fail to discover, to cease delving into the mysteries of the universe was not only blasphemy, but doom. His nation had seen that in its early days. A scant 200 years into its existence, the nation of Awal Izgafra had descended into a civil war. The flames of God had descended upon his people and wiped them nearly out of existence. The few that had survived rebuilt their civilization with urgency, recovering all they could of the lost science, and redoubled their efforts not to cause a return of the Creator's wrath. Gavin wasn't sure if he believed the myth, but he wasn't ready to risk everything to test its veracity. And so it was when Vizier Lord Kafani Musa came to him, King Gavin granted him a boon to pursue the exotic and arcane young fields of aerodynamics, molecular biology, and organic chemistry. Over the next several days, Ilya experimented with the bubble universe, fascinated by its growth. It would have been hard to explain to anyone not steeped in physics or mathematics, but what interested her most was the fact that the dimensional complexity of the thing appeared to be growing at a fundamental level 
while the absolute size of the universe itself grew only slightly. From this, she concluded that it was not only growing in size in her universe, but expanding elsewhere in a parallel fashion. The bubble might already be quite large inside. There was no telling. If so, its expansion might be accelerating, as did her own. If space were changing inside the bubble universe, then time must be changing also. That opened up some opportunities for controlled experiments with time and space that weren't possible without an outside observer. The other thing that was interesting was that the thing itself didn't have discernible mass. It was as though in its creation, it had eaten a hole in the surrounding space, pinching off a piece of it and shrunk it into an infinitesimally small size in creating itself. That meant that there might be a link between the two, a conduit through which information could be passed. She began to experiment with the idea of manipulating the quantum dynamic properties of the confinement field to see if it had an effect on the bubble universe. Just months ago, the vast interplanetary array that stretched from the Cafezi system's three gas giants and two habitable planets had detected a third intelligence in the universe. Communication with the Rakal had confirmed its origin as external to Cafez. Ulat Shrifkin touched the colored area on his desk and summoned his secretary. Send in Sleha and the ambassador from Tulith. I have something I want to discuss with them. Very well, sir. Shrifkin's science advisor and the Tulethi ambassador entered his office moments later. The Tulethi stood looking out the window as the stars floated by, and Sleha cleared his throat. Your Excellency? Two off, began Shrifkin. Excellency. You know for some time that I've been curious about our two planets' religions. I'm something of a student of them myself. Indeed you are, Excellency. Your work is admired on both our worlds, as are your knowledge and insight. Please continue. Tuoth, has it ever occurred to you just how unusual it may be that despite some 2,000 years of separation, our societies evolved identical beliefs? I don't suppose it has, but you're right. It seems curious. More than curious, for the sake of argument, let's say you're a highly evolved species of aquatic air breathers and you were born, live, and die in the tropical oceans. Food swims around you constantly, the waters are warm and calm most of the year, except for a season of violent storms. Perhaps you develop a philosophy that the creator of the world is a benevolent herdsman who angers only when his children stray. Now suppose your species evolved under harsh conditions on the mountain steppes, with little shelter from the wind, long hot days, and bitter cold nights, feeding only on the carcasses of your weaker compatriots. Certainly you would develop a different philosophy. Most certainly, Excellency. And yet our two civilizations both believe that the one Lord Almighty commanded us both. Untold miles and thousands of years apart, to a relentless pursuit of science. It has been fortunate for us both, admitted Tuath. The ambassador looked out the window, then returned his gaze purposefully. But I confess I don't see your point, unless it is that God lives as a scientist. My point, my dear Tuath, 
is that our faiths confirm each other. There is no empirical reason they should. God might appear to each world as served its own need. Tuath squirmed as if wishing to avoid the subject. Shrifkin realized he had gone too far. Just then, science advisor Sleha stepped in to interrupt the conversation. Sir, he said, I believe your presence is required in the command seat. Our engineers at the S1328-11GT outpost have reported a discovery in the Great Orange Curtain. Since the creation of the Mladenau bubble, Ilya Meyer had slept little. She found herself up at odd hours, tweaking and adjusting and measuring, recalibrating her findings with bits of theory and old research. One thing she found was that by adjusting the properties to the confinement field, she could repeatedly impress anomalies in the field density upon the internal structure of the void, like someone putting a hand on the surface of water of a swimming pool. She found that with a little practice, she could make patterns in the outside of the bubble. And then, with a little more practice, she could push harder, causing the orange vapor to be absorbed or dissipated. She was just making an adjustment when Mayfield returned from a late evening outing, slightly drunk and disheveled. <laughs> How was your date? asked Ilya. You smell like you led a team of commandos into a perfume factory and took it out. Not nearly anything that dramatic, said Kevin. And if you must know, it went quite horribly. Seems as smart and financially independent are necessary, but insufficient conditions for successful social intercourse. She asked me what I did for a living. When I told her I was making baby universes with you, she flipped me off and left the bar. You shouldn't have said that. Ilya replied. She grabbed a napkin that had been sitting under a now warm paper cup of coffee, dipped it, and reached for his face. Kevin stepped back. You've got ink on your cheek, Kevin. How the hell did that happen? Kevin squirmed. Be still, Ilya said, scrubbing vigorously. I've almost got it all off. Ilya, please, Kevin began. I don't want... Without warning, Ilya leaned forward and put her mouth on Kevin's. She closed her eyes and put her whole body into it. He relaxed as she grabbed his shoulders, then slid her arms around and underneath his and pulled herself closer. She pulled away slowly. Mm, she said. The two of them climbed clumsily onto a nearby desk and in doing so managed to dislodge half a dozen sheets of notes and a few pens, and back into a control knob on the CVG controls. It was then that the machine began to hum, and the confinement field began to ripple. S1328-11GT was a bit of an odd duck, cosmologically speaking. The only wormhole known to the Cafes, its opposite end was also millions of light years closer to the Great Orange Curtain, the multi-galaxy spanning wall of ionizing radiation than any of the populated worlds reached so far. In the epochs of the curtain's activity, the intensity fluctuations stretched almost instantaneously across vast gulfs, implying either quantum entanglement or a common cause larger than the universe itself. This had led Lord Junt to postulate that the Great Curtain was itself not an entity, but a four-dimensional shadow of something larger. 
it was as preposterous to think that the curtain's changes were instantaneously being communicated across vast gulfs as it was to think two lights shining on the same animal and producing two shadows was due to communication between the shadows. The fact that Shrifkin now had at his disposal the ability to examine the Great Curtain simultaneously from two vastly different perspectives offered an opportunity to test Junt's theory. As the Bemeji Fanuk approached the far end of S1328-11GT, Shrifkin hailed the chief engineer of the far outpost. After a short delay, the engineer, a man named Tuath, answered. Greetings, Chancellor Shrifkin, said Tuath with some degree of ceremony. I trust you had a safe journey. Quite. As you know, Tuath began, the Cafes and Tuleth have watched the heavens now for millennia. We know that perhaps half a dozen times in the course of both our civilization's development, fluctuations in the Great Curtain have led to disruptive dimensional singularities, cosmic strings many parsecs long, brains that ebb and flow with the rotation of galaxies. But today, today, the entire length of the wall moved in unison as a standing wave. It literally vibrated like a corded instrument. Shrifkin rolled his eyes. Legends tell, Tuath continued, of a time when the curtain moved in such a way. In the time of your esteemed flick, it was said to speak to him. It was through just a wall of flame, as we see now, that the great priest Anrak was said to have heard the word of the Almighty and instructed Flick to lay down the great commandments of discovery. And now, after eons, the curtain is pulsating. Ilya tried to put the incident with Kevin out of her mind, somewhere off in a tidy corner where she could make up reasons it had happened, then discard them. On her mind now were the matters of the containment field's variance, the intensification of the vapor cloud, and its effect on the young, still-developing Mladeno bubble. In the last 24 hours, she had learned more about it, specifically that after each test of the bubble's fundamental limits, the degree of order in the manifold measured by the Yao sensors in Milan decreased. Based on the instrument parameters, the bubble manifold itself maintained the dimensionality somewhere between 7 and 11. Despite the increased folding, it never seemed to increase or decrease significantly. One-dimensional cosmic strings and multi-dimensional membranes came and went, coordinated with patterns formed on the bubble's apparent outer surface by the orange vapor. She learned that she could control the appearance and disappearance of the strings by varying the manifold constants within the confinement chamber. One day in the second week of the experiment, just on a lark, she tried something varying the constants according to a set pattern, a kind of Morse code. It stood to reason that if anything or anyone actually lived in this tiny bubble universe, she might be able to talk to them. Her first attempts at sending a message were primitive first contact experiments. Natural mathematical constants like approximate values of pi, e, the Planck constant, and quantum time. She sent short passages of text some further formulas, and in the third and fourth weeks, she got a response. After a few days, she noticed increasingly complex responses. Simple hellos evolved into fairly long and complex verbalizations that the crypto guys identified as language. 
they were still decoding its meaning. Formulas were followed by corrections and additions. Whole volumes appeared of what must have been art or literature. Not long after, instructions for increasing and decreasing dimensional and folding. She wasn't surprised she had not noticed any ordered activity in the bubble before. In fact, she was sure she hadn't. Then, the messages stopped. For several days, she felt dejected. It seemed to her as though she had let the excitement of being able to send information into the void take her imagination on a joyride. Gradually, she dismissed her conjectures, and yet the theories and formulas shared with her were unquestionably correct. Some were novel. Just one of them would be enough to keep entire departments within the Institute busy for decades. Ilya began to get nervous about the lull in communication, and for the next two nights, she didn't sleep much. She stayed at her workstation, waving off co-workers until the messages began again. This time, they were in a different language, unrelated to the first. Only a few bits were recognizable. She made herself a promise to divulge the full text to Crypto when she had the chance. But in the meantime, she ran some of it through a test translator that had been developed by SETI, and then abandoned for lack of funding. The culture boot sequence of mathematical constants, simple formula, etc., repeated for a while on both sides. Then the flood of information resumed. Much of it now was beyond her comprehension. She knew how this all looked. It was bonkers! For the next few days, Ilya continued to conduct the communication experiments on the sly. Somehow, she had the notion that communicating with tiny people inside an artificially created universe was just too much for anyone to take. As a mathematical and physical curiosity, the Mladenau bubble had promise, but to suggest that it was inhabited? Why couldn't it be inhabited? What was so wrong with the notion that the micro-universe she created would be inhabited, or that she could talk to the inhabitants? Tuoth beckoned Trifkin aside so that the others could not hear. We know now what your flick and our Jamal in their day did not, that God speaks in words as does man, and that the Lord wishes to hear of the bounty of our works, which laying aside all the poetry means what, Tuoth? We've analyzed the pulsations, Chancellor, Someone is vibrating a 15 million light-year stretch of gases and ionizing radiation in an intelligent pattern. And make no mistake, the message is the same as Flick's. This being, this creature, this deity or demiurge, craves our discoveries. For the love of reason, why? asked Shrifkin. You'd think that an all-powerful god would also be all-knowing or that he or she would just reach his or her timeless fingers into the void and pull out whatever knowledge was desired. Why ask us for knowledge? Perhaps God wants to know man, said Tuath. I don't know, I'm not a philosopher. Play along then. Why would God, if that's who this is, repeatedly bother us every few centuries for a dose of our wisdom? What's so special about us? I thought God was supposed to know everything already. Maybe God's wisdom is like the pages of a book. It comes and is revealed to the observer, then passes on into the past. Maybe God knows so much that he has forgotten some of what he knows. Just try asking an old person to think of something particular and to pull it out of the front of his mind. That doesn't sound very godly, says Shrifkin. 
It sounds senile. Tuath's face blackened. He was trying to hide signs of being offended, especially in front of Chancellor Shrifkin. Perhaps there is another reason, then, he offered. Shrifkin leaned in and whispered to Tuath, Do you know what I think? I think it is not God at all, but a stranger. Someone outside our universe who is no more powerful than we, who desperately needs what we have and has no way to get it. Tuath bowed his head so that Chancellor Shrifkin could not see his face. Perhaps you are right, he admitted, though he felt it was blasphemy to say so. But if so, that still doesn't explain why vengeance has been doled out on us every few centuries when we choose to disobey the request. In weeks 5 through 7, following the creation of the Mladenau bubble, Ilya Meyer finally worked out a system for efficient communication. She'd request information, usually in rather specific form, and with some urgency, through the Manifold Variance interface. When she didn't get it in a day or two, she'd increase the intensity of the vapor cloud in the containment field that caused the dimensional singularities. About 24 hours later, she'd get a very detailed answer. She always had to repeat the culture boot sequence. Perhaps it was a new culture each time. She couldn't tell from outside the envelope. The process produced numerous scientific advantages in rapid succession, almost too fast for her to document. The volume of information was immense. In less than two months, she obtained plausible, buildable designs for sophisticated particle weapons, a high-output gamma-ray laser, stable negative energy density fields, and even answers to philosophical questions. She had received long, detailed treaties on exobiological diversity, designs for high-strength nanocomposites, sky ladders, and something called a star cannon. She still wasn't sure what that was. As well as an FTL space drive that actually used technology she hadn't thought of connecting together. And then, eight weeks into the experiment, she received a message so direct and so profound that it baffled her. Why are you doing this? Then the information transfer abruptly stopped. Even this far out, at S1328-11G, Shrifkin felt the heat of the religious establishments of both Cafez and Tulith. It almost wrecked his project. And yet he persisted. Meanwhile, Tuath's engineers had discovered an ingenious way to control the Great Curtain from the station by modulating a carrier wave on the small segment of the curtain's own transmissions using two wide-field interstellar dish arrays. Now they could talk directly to whoever and whatever was controlling the Great Curtain. And while the replies often took years, a conversation was underway. In just three years, since Shrifkin and Tuath permanently relocated to the outpost, a theological fervor of apocalyptic proportions had built. Flick followers oozed out of the woodwork, claiming that Ulat Shrifkin was talking to God, and way too bluntly. To Shrifkin, the legends of wrathful vengeance now seemed like the petty outlashing of an angry drunk on a millennia-long bender, not a benevolent all-knowing being. What kind of all-knowing being would crave the science of his subjects? Why? Such a creature seemed deficient, not godly. Sure. Whoever they were talking to must exist outside Trifkin's time and space. 
A day for that entity might be thousands of years for him. And the separation of his universe from the outside entities might explain why one seldom saw direct intervention in local events. That kind of fine-tuned control wasn't possible. Two things, and only two things, were possible to accomplish from outside. Communication and alterations of structure of space and time. The Great Curtain, he theorized, was just that. A curtain hiding him from the truth. Why are you doing this? Shrifkin repeated. It took so very long to communicate that he had taken to recording his last transmissions manually to keep track of the conversation. Doing what? Manipulating time and space. I know you're doing it. I want to know why. Who are you? asked the unknown entity. My name is Ulat Shrifkin. I am Chancellor of Kafez and leader of our people. It has been two hours, said Ilya. You've stopped sending information. It's been two years, replied Shrifkin. Why do you need it? Who are you? I demand an answer. That's not relevant. I have asked for the information, and in the past your people have produced it. Now they've stopped. Well, said Shrifkin, some of our people view those requests as commandments. I don't, so you can blame it on me. I ordered them to stop sending you anything until you explained yourself. What if I don't want to? I suppose you'll try to wipe us out again, said Shrifkin. But this time you won't succeed. We've already spread to the far reaches of the universe. That last bit was a stretch, but he didn't know who or what he was dealing with. And it occurred to him the suspicion might be mutual. <laughs> That's fantastic, replied Ilya. So quickly! It took us 8,000 years. And we only succeeded because one of our scientists discovered a wormhole. Ilya couldn't help but allow the scientist in her to emerge. A wormhole? How fascinating! Not particularly, but useful. It allowed us to get to the other side of the Great Curtain and measure the fluctuations in field intensity along the border of a multi-galaxy dimensional membrane. Once we knew that was some form of communication, we figured out a way to place our messages upon an amplitude-inverse model of the fluctuations without having to control the entire curtain. It seems it worked. Ilya smiled. How ingenious. You piggybacked the signal. Wonderful. For Shrifkin, these small talk comments added an intolerable delay. He found it difficult enough to follow the slowness of the conversation, and he wished sorely that whatever being lay on the other side would just get to the point. He decided to probe for as much information in one go as he could get away with. I'm guessing you created the curtain, Shrifkin said. I figured that part out already. More than that, said Ilya, suddenly full of herself and growing tired of Shrifkin's tempest in a teapot. I created your universe. Now keep these discoveries coming, or else... In the days before the Great Contraction and Dissolution, 
read a lengthy history streamed to Ilya Meyer's Peter Drive. When the suns had grown cold and dark, the ether ships of the great diaspora recorded the expansion of Kafezi society to the absolute farthest reaches of creation, the establishments of the great institutes of insight, and the gradual acceptance that the universe indeed had an external creator. The writings of Shrifkin, now nothing but dust, filtered down through the seventh age of wisdom and became, as the writings of many sages do, the source of our new belief. After Shrifkin, the history continued, the curtain grew silent. Men pursued knowledge from curiosity alone, and because Shrifkin persevered in hiding his eternity plan, the wrath of God never again came upon the people of Kafez. Instead, the Kafez prepared for the future. There was a world outside populated by others, and where information could pass, so could many things. Life was nothing but patterns. Eons passed, and the people never wavered from the holy plan of Shrifkin. A great flowering of peace and enlightenment came in those last days, shared by the timeless essences of what had once been men and were now eternal. And at last, the long-awaited time came. Exactly 12 weeks into the experiment, while Ilya was out having coffee with Kevin, a final massive transmission crossed the Great Curtain. It was a representation of all that was, all that had ever been Kafezi society. Every last image, thought, feeling, creature, cloud or sunset, preserved for whatever lay beyond. Moments later, in an actinic blue flash that distorted and destroyed the confinement envelope, the Mladenau bubble collapsed. The Kafez were coming, and they didn't like bullies. Thank you for listening. If you loved what you heard, please like and subscribe to Untold Tales on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Now, you know that we love our listeners, fans, and patrons, and we know that you love us too. So I'd like to invite you personally to join the Real Space Insiders community on Patreon. I often get asked, what is Patreon? So Patreon is a membership site that helps support artists and creatives to continue to do the work they love to do while bringing you the products and services you love. It's what helps pay for my time so that I can focus on collecting, recording, and promoting original science fiction stories of our time. The stories on our podcast are literally being written as we speak and as we are listening. In the Real Space Insiders community on Patreon, you're going to be part of an amazing international community of fans. You'll get exclusive behind-the-scenes content that nobody in the world gets to see live narration sessions that I don't post anywhere on social media or on the internet or on my website, anywhere. You'll get behind the scenes content, digital downloads, early access to content coming out, including events whenever we have them, and patron shout outs. And you aren't tied into any commitment, so you can stay and go whenever you'd like. So for less than two fancy cups of coffee a month, you can keep the stories coming. So go ahead and pop over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, forward slash Melissa Del Toro voiceover. That'll be down in the show notes. If you'd like to read more of the stories on the Untold Tales series not narrated here on our podcast, 
You can find Jeff's books on Amazon.com in paperback and Kindle format. So those links are all in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.